Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover Hebrews chapter 5, 1 through 10. The topic is Jesus, our High Priest. The author is continuing with the topic he was dealing with at the end of chapter 4, which is our context. At the end of chapter 4, the author talked about Jesus as our High Priest. He was trying to point out to the Jews there that Jesus is a superior High Priest because he was a man and could sympathize with our sufferings and our weaknesses, even as the Jewish high priest could do. Of course, he could do it better than a Jewish high priest, but that's the point. Is He's at least equal to a Jewish high priest because Jesus is a man and able to identify with the people he's being the priest for. But also, Jesus is a superior high priest in because, because he is God, and he doesn't have to carry an animal into the throne room of God, he can carry himself in there and offer himself as a sacrifice for the people. So that's kind of the idea, the theme of what we're dealing with as we go through here. Starting with verse 1, Hebrews 5, for every high priest taken from men is appointed in service to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now what's the for there for? For every high priest, which means because every high priest for men, Adam Clark says that the author is referring back to Hebrews 4.15, which says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Because of that, because we have a sympathetic high priest, because of that, every high priest taken from men is appointed in service to God for the people. I'm not sure the connection is as clear as Adam Clark says it is. But the idea is we have a sympathetic high priest, and he's the reason he's sympathetic is because he's taken from men, as the author says in verse 1 here. The high priest is taken from men, and Jesus was a man, and he is therefore sympathetic to us. And the high priest is imported, appointed in service to God for the people. Likewise, Jesus was a high service, and his service to God was for the people. Here's what John Gill says, it was proper he should be so that he might be a priest for men, have compassion on them, and offer for them. Hebrews 4.15, last chapter, says this, For we do not have a high priest. I've already, I just read that verse, but let me read it again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so now Jesus is emphasizing the men here. For every high priest is taken from men. In other words, Jesus is a high priest, and like all the other high priests, he was taken from men. He was a man. He was a human being, could sympathize with us. He was not taken from angels, as Gill and Clark point out. Angels could not have sympathized with our plight as men. And believe me, the human race is suffering. There's no other way to describe it. Suffering, suffering, suffering human race. Now, a high priest normally, in the Old Testament religious institutions, could only offer sacrifices for sins of ignorance or misguidance, people not knowing what they were doing, or either they intended to do right but did wrong. Those kind of sins were covered, but deliberate, defiant sins were not covered. Here's the scripture showing that, Numbers 15, verses 27 through 31. If one person sins unintentionally, he is to present a year-old female goat as a sin offering. The priest must then make atonement before the Lord on behalf of the person who acts in error, sinning unintentionally. And when he makes atonement for him, he will be forgiven. You are to have the same law for the person who acts in error, whether he acts in error. I need to emphasize that. In other words, doesn't act with a high hand, with premeditation and deliberate forethought. 
but he acts in error, whether he is an Israelite or a foreigner who lives among you. But the person who acts defiantly, whether native or foreign resident, blasphemes the Lord. That person is to be cut off from the people. He will certainly be cut off. So if you went out and you defiantly robbed a bank or premeditatedly killed somebody, you're executed, and that's the end of that. So this is a point where Jesus is a superior high priest to the Jewish high priest because the Jewish high priest couldn't offer a sacrifice for intentional sins, but Jesus can he forgives murderers. He forgave the Apostle Paul who got people judicially murdered. He's able to do that. Now, again, what's the purpose of the law that this high priest, that the Jewish high priest was in charge of? It was, it was to show people their sin. It was to condemn people for their sin. And it was to drive people to get righteousness from God. So the law was good. It was holy, but it was not meant to redeem us. But Jesus was, so he's a superior high priest. We go to verse 2, Hebrews 5. He, the high priest... The Jewish high priest is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he is also subject to weakness. Now, since the high priest did not deal with defiant sins, this suggests that those sins, that the unintentional sins were dealt with gently with those who were ignorant. They didn't mean to do it. They didn't. They were going astray, but they thought they were doing okay, or they didn't understand that what they were doing was wrong. And so the high priest, since he's a human being too, he can he can deal gently as he chastises them for that. However, the de dealing gently is done with those who are ignorant. But those who are defiant, who act with premeditated malice, well, now that's a different story. They're cut off. They're not dealt with gently. Application here. We too should be gentle with sinners who are just confused and ignorant. And there's a lot of them like that. They've got themselves into sin and the bondage and their life is a mess and they don't realize that they've done wrong. You've got to be gentle with them. But those who obviously chortle with glee and delight as they break God's law, well, that's a different story. We should firmly rebuke those people. Now, here's some scriptures talking about acting in ignorance. 1 Timothy 1.13 one who was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. Paul's talking about himself. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. Paul thought he was doing the will of God as he persecuted Christians. He didn't realize he was persecuting God. If he had known that he was persecuting God and it just screamed out, I hate you, God, I will worship the devil. Well, that's a different story. But Paul acted in ignorance and unbelief, and that always creates more sympathy than people who deliberately sin. Luke 23:34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them as he's on the cross. They're crucifying the Son of God. And, he, and Jesus asked for their forgiveness because of their ignorance. I don't think they got it, but in fact, I know they didn't because in AD 70, the, the judgment for the deicide, the murder of Jesus, was executed and the whole nation was wiped out. But Jesus nonetheless said they don't realize they're killing the Messiah. And you know what I think about that is well, they should have known, though. They really should have known. They, they didn't know. They should have known. It's amazing how much mercy Jesus showed there. I haven't worked myself up to the point where I feel very sympathetic with those who killed Jesus. Not to the point of saying, Father, forgive them. I, I confess it. I, have tr I don't see how he could say that. But he did. And that just shows, man, we need to forgive a lot more than we're capable of. To deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. The author says the Greek for gent deal gently with is metropotheo. Now that means don't be too severe, but it also means don't be too tolerant either, as Woost says. Dealing gently does not mean not dealing at all with. Sin still has to be dealt with. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. 
The word metriopathene signifies not merely to have compassion, but to act with moderation and to bear with each in proportion to his ignorance, weakness, and untoward circumstances, all taken into consideration with the offenses he has committed. In a word, to pity, feel for, and excuse as far as possible, and when the provocation is at the highest, to moderate one's passions, one's passion towards the culprit, and be ready to pardon, and when punishment must be administered, to do it in the gentlest manner. That's why you need good judges, folks. They know when to be harsh, and they know when to be gentle. Now the author says in verse 2, this high priest is subject to weakness. The Greek word for subject is to be encircled with. The high priest is encircled with weakness. John Gill says, weaknesses beset him all around. John Gill also translates it this way, the high priest is clothed with sin. The KGV translates it as the high priest is compassed with sin. He's surrounded by it. Contrast that with Jesus. He's sinless, not one sin. So that means the high priest understands when he's given forgiveness to his fellow Israelites. It's not because he's a big shot high priest that he's doing it. He's full of sin just like they are. Hebrews 5.3, because of this, he must make a sin offering for himself as well as the people. Because of what? Because he is also subject to weakness, surrounded by sins. Because of this, he must make a sin offering for himself as well as for the people. And again, Jesus doesn't have to make a sin offering for himself. This shows that Jesus is superior to this Jewish high priest. Here's the scriptures that shows that the high priest must make an offering for himself. Leviticus 16.6, Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. The high priest was a sinner, needed atonement. Leviticus 16.11, when Aaron presents the bull for his sin offering and makes atonement for himself and his household, he will slaughter the bull for his sin offering. He makes atonement for himself. Hebrews 7.27, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins and then for the people. Jesus doesn't need to do that. He did this once for all when he offered himself. All right, so that fits the theme of Hebrews perfectly well. It shows the inferiority of the high priest and the superiority of Jesus. Jesus never had to offer a sacrifice for himself. Now, having to offer a sacrifice for himself, that will give the high priest a sense of compassion and sympathy. He knows he's in the same boat as everybody else is, as Adam Clark said, because he has to offer a sin sacrifice for himself. Now, notice the present tense. He must make a sin offering. That shows that the sacrifices are still going on, which helps date the book of Hebrews because the temple hasn't been destroyed yet. So Hebrews was hidden before, written before AD 70, most people say, in the 60s. We go to verses 4 and 5. No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God, just as Aaron was, the honor of being high priest. A person is called. He doesn't appropriate of a high priesthood. He is called to it by God. In the same way, the Messiah did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but the one who said to him, You are my son today, I have become your father. What the author is trying to say here is Jesus didn't arrogate unto himself a position of high honor, but rather God the Father gave him that honor. Now here's a little historical side note here. No one takes this honor on himself. A person is called by God. Some people use that to justify apostolic succession, the doctrine that states that in order to have a legitimate church, it has to be founded by an apostle who was founded by another apostle who was founded by another apostle, and you tra trace the chain all the way back down to one of the original apostles, apostolic succession which is a dumb idea, in my humble opinion. Here's what Jameson Fawcett Brown says about it. 
It is idle to employ time in proving that there is no such thing as an uninterrupted succession of this kind. It does not exist. It never did exist. It is a silly fable invented by ecclesiastical tyrants and supported by clerical coxcombs. A coxcomb is a dandy, a little Lord Fauntleroy. <laughs> I love this rhetoric. This is Adam Clark speaking here. But were it even true, it has nothing to do with the text. It speaks merely of the appointment of a high priest, the succession to be preserved in the tribe of Levi and in the family of Aaron. But even this succession was interrupted and broken, and the office itself was to cease of the coming of Christ, after whom there could be no high priest. I think it was broken sometime in the Maccabean period. I remember watching some history on YouTube somewhere, and somewhere in the 2nd century B.C., one of these Hasmonean princes that was now running Israel after the Maccabean revolt just decided to take the high priest. Who was that? I can't remember. It was a famous one. I don't know if it, I'm not going to say who I think it was, but the point is, is at that time, the high priesthood became political and not legitimate. And so that illustrates Clark's point here. If you don't, you can't have Levitical succession, high priest succession, you can't do the same thing with apostolic succession. How do you know who was apostle when? The verse, therefore, Clark continues, has nothing to do with the clerical office, with preaching God's holy word or administering the sacraments. And those who quote it in this way show how little they understand the scriptures and how ignorant they are of the nature of their own office. Hear, hear, Adam Clark. It's a shame Mr. Clark's not alive so he can tell us what he really thinks. I would ask anybody who's trying to claim apostolic succession, hey, buddy, are you a successor of the high priest Jesus? Please. Don't talk to me that way. That's that's much too high church for my taste. No one takes this honor on himself, of course. He has to be appointed and called by God. Likewise, Jesus didn't take the honor of the high priesthood on himself. He says in John 8:54, If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My Father, you say about him, he is our God. He is the one who glorifies me. So Jesus said God glorified him. God put Jesus in the high priestly ministry, not people. A person is called by God. This is talking about the high priesthoods in general. Of course, starting with Aaron, who was the first high priest, and all the subsequent high priests who were called by God, just as Aaron was. Of course, Aaron was the first high priest. In fact, you had to be of the family of Aaron in order to be to qualify for being a high priest according to the Old Testament law. Now, a scripture is quoted here at verse 5. In the same way, the Messiah did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but the one who said to him, the one, that's the father, who said to him, the son, you are my son, today I become your father. Where did God say that to Jesus? Well, that's in Psalm 2.2, chapter 2, verse 7. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Hebrews 1, 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, these psalms are a quotation, or I should say the citation here in Hebrews is a quotation from Psalm chapter 2. You are my son, I have become your father. And again, this is the purpose of this is to show that Jesus is qualified to be a high priest because God called him. God the Father called Jesus his son, which of course is a messianic title. Now the quotation, you're my son today, I become your father, that's from Psalm 2. Now Psalm 2 was a royal psalm, as Fee and Stewart point out, famous book on hermeneutics. It's a royal psalm. It dealt especially with Israel's kings. An Israelite king was said to be God's son, just as David was God's son. And so when you say a king has a son, that means the king 
When you say a king was God's son, you're saying the king has been given a God-given right to rule. Today refer to the coronation day. Today you have become my son. Or today I have become your father. That means the king is anointing his son to be king over the, over the country. So this is a kingly psalm. And so this is what's referring to. It doesn't refer to the day of the son's birth. It refers to the day of the son's coronation. And so Jesus' kingship is added to his priesthood here with this psalm, quotation of psalm, the author points to Jesus as king in addition to Jesus as priest, as high priest. Now, let's look at this cryptic word, become. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Well, become sounds like God is becoming. The father is becoming, and that's a problem because God, the father, is outside of time. He doesn't mutate from a state of imperfection to a state of perfection or completion or maturity. He just is. Now, I know philosophically that creates problems like, well, how can there be movement in heaven if everything is perfect and then you can't move? And then we're all frozen in heaven. I remember reading that as a philosophical problem, and I haven't really answered that yet. A lot of things in philosophy I can't answer. But anyway, we see this verb become, and we see, oh, we got a father, because there never was a time when the father was not the father of the son. He was always the father of the son. Eternal generation is eternal generation of the son from the father, as we say, to use proper Nicene Orthodox terms. So what does the author mean here? Today I've become your son. Well, here's some options as to what is meant. Option number one, no point in time is meant at all. The reference is poetic and anthropomorphic. Those who take this option say it is impossible to refer to time here because the son cannot be begotten in time because the son is eternal. And if he was begotten in time, there would have to be a time when he was not, which would mean he would not be eternal. This reference is father and son language is an accommodation to human language. The point being the first person of the Godhead is the father and the second person is the son. They have a relationship that goes on forever and ever. And so the become there, you just read it as is. The father is the father to the son. There wasn't a day when he became such. Jameson Fawcett and Brown taking this position, quoting the great commentator Alford, says this. Alford refers this day, today, to the eternal generation of the son. Today I've become your father. This is the eternal generation of the son. The day in which the son was begotten by the father is an everlasting today. There never was a yesterday or a past time to him, nor a tomorrow or a future time. Well, okay. That's a legitimate option, I think. However, here's another option that Jameson Fawcett and Brown himself comes up with. The context refers to a definite point of time, namely that of his having entered on the inheritance. So that would be the second option is what is to when God became the father of the son is when Jesus entered into his inheritance. Well, when was that? Well, probably at his ascension. So we'll just run that together with the option at the uh, resurrection and the ascension is when Jesus became the son of the father in the sense that the author of Hebrews meant. Adam Clark holds this position. We can see this supported by Acts 13, verses 32 through 33. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, and as is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Notice that Paul says, raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Well, Paul there directly connects the resurrection 
with this psalm, today I become your father. He connects the resurrection with God the Father becoming the father of God the Son. That's a pretty good option, too. Here's a third option. Let's see, one, two. All right, option number one was there's no reference to time. It's just a poetic reference. Option number two is the resurrection of Jesus. And option number three is God became the father of the Son at Jesus' birth. Son is an incarnation title, so the Son is like Jesus. Jesus is a name referring to Jesus in his incarnate state. That was his earthly name, and so the idea is when he became an earthly being, when he was became incarnate, that's when God became his father. So Jesus, from the point of view of his humanity, was begotten in time. Prior to the incarnation, he was the eternal word, and he's the eternal word now. But if you're going to look at Jesus, you can say there was a time when the incarnate Jesus was not, and so you could say at that point Jesus became the father. And I think that's a good option, too, so I'm not really sure what the author meant. I'm, I have equal distant affection for all three of those options but at some point we know that god the father is the father of the son now whenever he became so is really irrelevant to the main point we go to verse six in hebrews five and since verse six is in the middle of a sentence i'll go back and read verse five in the same way the messiah did not exalt himself to become a high priest but the one who said to him you are my son today have become your father verse six also said in another passage, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, where is the author of Hebrews quoting from? Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back forever. You are a priest like Melchizedek. This, of course, is from Psalm 110, which is the psalm that is quoted in the, in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament scripture. It's a messianic psalm. As Adam Clark says it, has a very striking prediction of Jesus' birth, his preaching, his suffering, his death, his conquest. What does it mean when the author says that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek? Well, there's a lot of differences between the order of Melchizedek and Jesus. To be a priest in Aaron's order, one had to be a direct descendant of Aaron. To be a priest in Melchizedek's order, one had to be a son, a king. This again shows the superiority of Jesus over the Old Testament Mosaic order. Now, the Messiah is not only going to be a priest, he's also going to be a king. The Old Testament priest could never be a king because those two offices were religiously kept separate, not combined until the Maccabean era. You couldn't be a king and you couldn't be a priest at the same time, sort of like separation of church and state. Here's a verse telling us this, Zechariah 6.13, yes, he will build the Lord's temple, he will be clothed in splendor, this is talking about the Messiah, and will sit on his throne and rule. There will also be a priest on his throne, and there will be peaceful counsel between the two of them. So Jesus is the king, and Jesus is the priest ruling on God's throne. He combines the two offices which were never combined before. Now, Melchizedek, I guess we should go back and pick up the story of what happened there. It's a little bit obscure. It's in Genesis 14, 7 through 20. If you recall the story, Lot got himself stolen by some kings that came from the Mesopotamian Valley. They invaded southern Israel there, south of the Dead Sea, and they took off Lot, who was living in Sodom, which was south of the Dead Sea. Abram didn't like that and went chasing after him, after his nephew Lot. I think they caught him somewhere... I forgot where they caught him, but anyway, they caught the kings. Abraham defeated them, came back, and he met with his allies. And he also met with this Melchizedek, who was a priest and is also king of Salem, the forerunner of Jerusalem. 
So let's read that. Genesis fourteen seventeen through 20. After Abram returned from defeating Keter and the kings who were with him, those were the bad kings that came from the Mesopotamian Valley, the kings of Sodom went out to meet him, meet Abraham in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High. That's Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and I give praise to God Most High who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, Abraham didn't have to give him a tenth. There's a lot of discussion in the biblical literature about how this tenth is different than a tenth of your produce because this was a tenth of the spoils of war, how Abram didn't have to give it. He wasn't commanded to give it. He gave it either as a matter of custom or as a matter of worship. Well, why would he worship a king? I don't know. But all of that is neither here nor there as far as I, we're concerned. The point is is that Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek, and there's a lot of implications that came from that. Basically, since Abraham was the direct ancestor of Levi, that means when Abram was giving tithes to Melchizedek, that means Levi was giving tithes to Melchizedek, and the person who gives tithes is lesser than the donee, the recipient of tithes. And so that means Melchizedek was a greater priest than Levi was. All right, well, if he's a greater priest, why was he a priest? Well, everything we know about Melchizedek, of those things that we know about Melchizedek, most of those things show that Melchizedek is superior. He was a priest of God. Okay, well, Aaron was a priest of God, too. The Levites were, or Aaron were priests of God also. So that doesn't show that Melchizedek is superior. But Melchizedek lived in Abraham's time. Levi lived about 500 years later. That means Melchizedek was older, and therefore he was more superior. Melchizedek was not a Hebrew. He was not a descendant of Abraham. Levi and Aaron were. So the author is appealing to someone who is not a Hebrew to show that Jesus' priesthood is greater than the Mosaic Old Testament priesthood because it is a priesthood that ministered to people outside the Jewish faith, to Gentiles, to everybody. Melchizedek had no genealogy. He appeared out of nowhere. He didn't have to prove his genealogy to be a priest. Levi did. So Melchizedek was superior to Levi. Jesus didn't have to prove his genealogy. Here's Hebrews 7.16. Jesus, who did not become a priest based on legal command concerning physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. So Jesus was not chosen to be a priest because of his genealogy. As a matter of fact, he was from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. So, But Melchizedek came out of nowhere. So he's better than Jesus. He didn't have to, he, excuse me, he's better than Levi and Aaron. He didn't have to have a genealogy. He vanished into oblivion. There's no record of his death anywhere. There, nowhere do we find that he ever stopped being a priest, just like Jesus never stopped being a priest. But Aaron did stop being a priest. His priesthood stopped when Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Melchizedek received offerings as a priest from Abraham. I've already mentioned this. I'll mention it again. Since Abraham was the ancestor of Levi and Aaron was of the tree of Levi, the Levitical or Mosaic priesthood was giving offerings to Melchizedek, which showed that Melchizedek was Aaron's priest and thus superior. Jesus is explicitly said to be like Melchizedek. We've already given you many examples of how Melchizedek is superior to Levi. And Jesus is said to be like Melchizedek which makes Jesus more superior makes Jesus superior to Levi and Aaron. 
Hebrews 7.15, and this becomes clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. And of course, that's referring to Jesus as a priest like Melchizedek who has appeared. And notice that the word forever is used in Hebrews 5.6. In another passage, God says, you are a priest forever. You, Jesus, are a priest forever and ever and ever. It's not ever going to stop his priesthood, his intercession for us, his meteor, mediation between God and us. Hebrews 5, 7, during his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. That's Jesus during his, Jesus's earthly life. He, Jesus, offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one, that's God the Father, who was able to save him, to save Jesus from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, Adam Clark's got an interesting statement here. He says, this is one of the most difficult places in this epistle, if not in the whole of the New Testament. The labors of learned men upon it have been prodigious. And even in their sayings, it is hard to find the meaning. Well, I don't know why this is such a big deal. Why is it so different? Adam Clark says it is, why is it, why is it is so difficult? Adam Clark says it is probable that the apostle refers to something in the agony of our Lord, which the evangelists have not distinctly marked, i.e. when Jesus is offering prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears. Well, I don't know why this is so hard. Why not just refer it to what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane? Mark 14, verses 33 through 36. He, Jesus, took Peter and James and John with him and began to be deeply distressed and horrified. Then he said to them, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Then he went a little farther, fell to the ground, and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. That sounds like a prayer and appeal with loud cries and tears to God to save him from death, to save him from the crucifixion he was about to face. So I have no quite, no doubt in referring this to the Gethsemane Garden passages. Here's another one in Luke 22:44, talking about Jesus in Gethsemane. Being in anguish, he, Jesus, prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. John 12:27. Jesus says this, Now my soul is troubled. He's in Gethsemane. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but this, that is why I came to this hour. So he's praying. He's suffering. He's in anguish. Does that not fit Hebrews 5, 7? He, Jesus, offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. God the Father was able to save Jesus from death. He didn't do it because he had his plan of salvation to carry out. But he didn't save him from death immediately, but he did save him from death because he rose him from the dead three days later. In fact, the end of, ver the end of verse 7 says this, And he, Jesus, was heard because of his, Jesus' reverence. God heard Jesus' prayer and raised him from the dead, saved him from death. didn't happen all at once, but it happened three days later. Obviously, Jesus did not want to die. God could have saved him from dying, but that was not God's will. But as I said, God did ultimately save him from dying by raising him from the dead. And even though God did not save Jesus from having to undergo his passion on the cross, he did encourage and strengthen Jesus. And even though the prayer was not answered immediately, Jesus nonetheless submitted to God's will. John 12, 27 through 28, Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled. What should I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So even though God didn't deliver Jesus from heaven immediately, he did strengthen him while he was on the cross. Jesus didn't want to die. He prayed that God would save him. 
Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus was afraid of death. He was not afraid of death. For one thing, Jesus wasn't afraid of going to hell because of his sins. As Adam Clark said, well, that might be true, but we also have to remember that Jesus was not just dying. He was dying with the sins of the world on his shoulders, in which case he was going to have to feel that, experience that separation from God the Father, which would be a horrible thought. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, Jesus feared not ordinary death, but the hiding of God's faith. That's what he feared, not seeing God anymore. The author of Hebrews says in verse 7 here that Jesus was heard because of Jesus' reverence. How was Jesus heard since he had to go to the cross? Luke 22:43 says this, that an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. God answered Jesus' cry for help by sending an angel. So God helped him through this horrible suffering on the cross. Now, the next question we need to ask is, why would the author of Hebrews even mention this in the, in the text here? Why would he be talking about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? Here's a possible reason. This is from Steve Atkinson. Evidently, the Hebrews' persecutors were looking down on Jesus. They were probably saying he's a mere man. After all, the author had been emphasizing Jesus' humanity because they, the author of Hebrews was saying that Jesus, because of his humanity, could sympathize with humans. And all that's true, but Jesus was not merely human. He was more than human. He was divine. And so the author wants to remind these Jews who were thinking about apostatizing, yeah, Jesus is great as a man. He's also great as a God because he was able to pray to God and God could hear him as he was going through his terrible trial. It says that Jesus was praying with tears. There's no mention in any other scriptures that he actually shed, shed them, not even in the Gethsemane appearances, but I don't think that means much as I think for sure. He actually cried as he cried out in his agony. Last of all of the things that are said in verse 7, we hear that Jesus was heard because of his reverence. The NIV says his submission. This is why the Father listened to the Son. Philippians 2, 8 and 9 says this, He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. He humbled himself, and he was obedient to dying. That's reverence. That's submission. We go to verse 8, Hebrews 5. Though he was God's son, he, Jesus, learned obedience through what he suffered. The though there means even though he was a God, he was, excuse me, not a God, even though he was God, he was divine, nonetheless, even as the God-man, he had to learn obedience through what he suffered. He had to suffer even though he was God. It's a huge contrast. Suffering God Good example for us, too, by the way. We're God's children. We're king's, kin, but king's kids, but we have to suffer. All Christians suffer at some point. Jesus learned obedience through personal experience. It wasn't academic learning that Jesus learned as he went through life. He learned obedience through what he suffered, through what he experienced. Suffered means experience. The learn there actually is to emphasize that point. The Greek word, manthano, does not mean academic learning. It doesn't mean book learning. It tends to suggest learning less through instruction, more from experience, as Bauer, Arndt, and Gendrick say. The Greek word is manthano. He learned obedience. It didn't happen automatically. He had to learn that that's what he should do. And he learned it through the things that he suffered, that he experienced, or that he suffered. We tend to learn through suffering for things we disobey in. Jesus, however, only learned through suffering unjustly for things he obeyed in. He obeyed and suffered. We disobey and suffer. You know, you rob a bank, you're going to suffer some jail time. 
But we can learn by suffering unjustly too, just like Jesus did, because people can persecute us and make us miserable even though we didn't do anything wrong. All Christians will suffer unjustly at some point. The Hebrews too could suffer unjustly at some point. They could escape the suffering by renouncing Jesus or they could remain quiet. But no, they shouldn't do that. They should press on in obedience as Jesus did. Now, how did Jesus suffer? He suffered from men. He suffered from devils. He suffered from the justice of God being poured out on the sins of mankind that Jesus was carrying on his shoulders. It's a powerful verse there, verse 8. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Likewise, we can learn obedience through what we suffer. Romans, uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, who obey Jesus. Now notice, Jesus was perfected. That obviously doesn't mean in the moral sense. Someone who is without sin cannot be perfected morally. He was perfected in terms of his ministry. He completed his ministry. The Greek word there is teleo. means to bring to an end, to bring to its goal or accomplishment. That's what Jesus did. He brought salvation to its goal, to its accomplishment. Now, how he did that with regard to Jesus, it meant he overcame earthly limitations, as Steve Atkinson said, as he carried out his priestly function. He overcame all earthly limitations. Uh, the persecution and disbelief of many who followed him the opposition of the Jews and the Romans, he overcame all that. He was perfect in his mission, but not in, he was perfected in his mission, but he was not perfected in his character because you can't make an already perfect character more perfect. He was perfected by his obedience. He finished suffering and doing all the things he needed to do to be a high priest by shedding his blood, dying on the cross, and so forth. Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. This does not mean that we obey and then we get... The, uh, rewarded for that with salvation. That would be works righteousness, which is easy to fall into and easy to misinterpret, misinterpret certain scriptures. No, that's not what it means. The whole letter of the book of Hebrews tells us that salvation by works is not the way to go. What he's trying to do here is to keep the Hebrew Christians from going back under the yoke of law of legalism. So those who obey Jesus are actually not legalists. They're those who are following the law of Christ and who listen to the master's voice. We go to verse 10. And he, Jesus, was declared by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We've already talked about the order of Melchizedek, how it's greater than the order of Levi, or the order of Aaron, I guess I should have to say to be more precise. Better to be a Melchizedek priest than an Aaronic priest. A Melchizedek priest is Jesus. Now, if Jesus is our high priest now, guess what? We don't need priest. The Catholics need priests, but we don't need priests. Mormons need priests, but we don't need priests. You don't need priests when you got a high priest in heaven interceding for you at the right hand of God. Ladies and gentlemen, we are finished with the first ten verses of Hebrews chapter 5. In our next audio, we will examine the last part of Hebrews 5, starting at verse 11 and running down to verse 14. That's just four verses, but we're going to look at teaching and being taught. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.